What motivated God, what drove God was his love for his people. He sent his son because he loved you, Christian. He loved you. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What is the biblical definition of propitiation? Why does it carry such importance in Christian doctrine and on a personal basis for each and every believer? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part nine of a series titled The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. We continue looking at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ in 1 John chapter 1 and 2. Last time we looked at how God, in His perfect holiness, created the moral laws for us to keep. And in His holy justice, God is righteously angry toward those who break His perfect law, and His response must be a just punishment. Fortunately, though, there's good news available to sinners. Do you know what that good news is? Let's find out as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Well, I do encourage you to take your Bibles and turn with me again to 1 John as we continue our study in this book. Two British authors, Steve Chalk and Alan Mann, wrote a controversial book entitled The Lost Message of Jesus. Tragically, sadly, in this book, they actually ridicule the biblical doctrine of propitiation that we're learning from 1 John, and they even label it as, quote, the myth of redemptive violence, end quote. Listen to what they write. The fact is that the cross isn't a form of cosmic child abuse, a vengeful father punishing his son for an offense he has not even committed. Understandably, they write, both people inside and outside of the church have found this twisted version of events morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. Deeper than that, however, is that such a concept stands in total contradiction to the statement that God is love, end quote. That is a tragic quote on many levels. But I think most tragic of all to me is that these men have grossly misrepresented what the Scripture teaches about the biblical doctrine of propitiation. It's important for us that we need to understand what the Bible does teach and to be able to defend it because it's at the heart of the gospel. What we're going to talk about today, a large theological word, a crucial concept, propitiation, is at the very center of the gospel. And let me put it as bluntly as I can. If you don't understand this truth, you don't really understand the gospel because it is the gospel. As we're learning in 1 John 2, these two professing Christians from Britain have tragically not only rejected the doctrine of propitiation, but they have rejected the very heart and soul of the good news of Jesus Christ. We're studying 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. And here we've discovered the first test of a true Christian. You can know that you have eternal life, that you're a true Christian, because you now have a new relationship to sin. Your relationship to sin is not what it once was if you're a truly a Christian. 
And that's what John is unfolding for us here. Now, this test is based on two fundamental biblical truths. First of all, the truth of God's essential nature of holiness. Verse 5 says, God is light. He is perfectly holy. And because of that, beginning in chapter 1, verse 6, and running through chapter 2, verse 6, it means that if we have a relationship with God, then our relationship to sin has changed as well. So this is about the believer's new relationship to sin. And that new relationship is shown in several ways. In verses 6 and 7, it's shown by the pattern of his life. True believers are walking in the light as God is in the light, meaning that the the pattern of their lives is not sin. The pattern of their lives is obedience and holiness. It doesn't mean Christians don't sin. We do. But when it comes to the pattern of our lives, it's not marked by sin, but rather by obedience and righteousness. Verses 8 and 9, it's shown by the admission of inherent sinfulness. And then Beginning in chapter 1, verse 10, and running through chapter 2, verse 2, this new relationship that the believer has to sin is shown by the admission of his actual sins. Let's read this section again. I'll just read beginning in verse 10 of chapter 1 through chapter 2 of verse 2, which is the portion we're dealing with. You follow along. John writes, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now we've learned in these few verses First of all, that a false Christian, that is somebody who says they're a Christian but really isn't, denies or downplays his sin. Sometimes, like the false teachers in John's day, they deny it outright. We've not sinned because sin's attached to the body. The bodies matter. It's evil. There's nothing you can do about that. It's only our spirit that matters. That's what the the pre-Gnosticism of the first century taught. But it doesn't merely take that form. Sometimes it's simply downplays sin by redefining it, reclassifying it, passing the blame on to somebody else. False Christians do that. They deny or downplay their sins. And then in verses 1 and 2 of the second chapter, we discovered that a true Christian admits his sin, hates his sin, pursues holiness, and trusts the work of Christ alone as the only solution for his sins. Now, that's a, that's a long phrase, but I've tried to capture those first two verses. We're taking it apart and looking at it more in detail. We've already seen that a true believer admits and hates his sins and pursues holiness. First part of verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John didn't want those to whom he wrote to sin. And if you're a true Christian, you don't want to sin either. There is within you a desire not to sin. You hate sin, and you want to be holy like Christ is holy. But secondly, the true Christian trusts Christ and his work for his sins. That's from the middle of verse 1 and through verse 2. And, and here in these 
these words, we see two aspects of the work of Christ that true Christians keep coming back to. If you're really in Christ, your mind keeps coming back to these two great realities. First of all, his intercession as our high priest. Verse 1 says, if anyone sins, and we do, we are having an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And we looked at that in great detail. It's one of the great comforting truths of Scripture. When you sin, remind yourself there's one who stands before God on your behalf, who, who represents you, who speaks on your behalf to God against the accuser, Satan. But the second aspect of the work of Christ is in verse 2, and it's his propitiation as our high priest. Look at verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. True Christians continue trusting entirely in the work of Christ, and specifically his work of propitiation, as they deal with the ongoing reality of sin in their lives. Now, as I said, this is at the very heart of the gospel, and this is what helps us when we sin. So it's really important that we understand this. So I, I sort of hit the pause button on our flow through the text and wanted to look at this in more detail. Last time, we looked at the meaning of propitiation. It occurs in several forms in the New Testament, and what it means is the satisfaction or the turning away of God's wrath, and that happens by means of an atoning sacrifice. The satisfaction or turning away of God's wrath by means of an atoning sacrifice. Now, why is that even necessary? Why do we need this? Well, notice verse 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins. There's the problem. Again, we looked at this in detail. I'm not going to develop it again, but let me just give you the, the propositions we uncovered together. First of all, God is perfectly holy and entirely without sin. Secondly, that perfectly holy God created moral laws for us that we are supposed to keep, and those laws merely reflect his own holy character. Number three, in his holy justice, God is righteously angry toward the sin and the sinner. God, by nature, cannot tolerate sin, and he is justly, righteously angry toward the sinner and the sin. And in fact, number four, he must punish our sin and rebellion with spiritual, physical, and eternal death. Death is the wages of sin, as Romans puts it. And then finally, and this is perhaps the most concerning of all, God's perfect, holy, just wrath against our sin is only satisfied when the just payment of death has actually been made. Romans, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, that is without the violent death of the person, there is no forgiveness. Now, all of that's the bad news. Fortunately, there's good news, and that's where we come to today, to the good news and really the thrust of 1 John 2.2, and it is the accomplishment of propitiation. The accomplishment of propitiation. Notice again, he himself is the propitiation 
for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, when we examine the New Testament text with this word group, we learn several essential truths about Jesus' accomplishment of our propitiation, both how and why and what it looks like. So we want to take this work of Christ apart a little bit and understand it more thoroughly. So let's look at these essential truths about propitiation. First of all, it was initiated by the love of God. It was initiated by the love of God. What prompted God to satisfy his own offended holiness, not by punishing the guilty, but by punishing his own son? It wasn't as man and chalky say, some sort of vindictive spirit in God. Not at all. They've misunderstood the New Testament. They haven't even read it. Because the truth is, the amazing reality of propitiation flows from the character of God and specifically the love of God. Look at chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 10. This is a crucial text. In this is love. You want to know what love really looks like? How it's really demonstrated? Here it is. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And what did God's love for us motivate him to do? He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What motivated God, what drove God was his love for his people. He sent his son because he loved you, Christian. He loved you. Romans chapter 3, verse 25 says, God the Father displayed Christ as a propitiation. This was the Father's plan, and it was his plan because he loved you. In fact, here's the amazing reality. Christian, the Father loves you as much as he loves his only one-of-a-kind son. You ever thought about that? He loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus himself said in the high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 23. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says this, Father, you loved them even as you have loved me. And if you doubt that, think about how the Father proved that love. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's amazing. Before we came to Christ, the wrath of God remained on us, as John 3.36 says, like a stain we could never get out. But because of God's great love, he initiated a way to satisfy that just wrath, not on us, but on his own son. It was initiated by the love of God. Secondly, propitiation was pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices. It was pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. Old Testament believers had thousands of pictures each year to help them understand why Jesus had to come and what he would accomplish in his death. And those pictures came in the form of animal sacrifices. The book of Leviticus introduces us to that great sacrificial system. The first 16 chapters of Leviticus, where many Christians stop their Bible read-through in January, is a crucial part of what God 
does. Because Leviticus 1 to 16 describes this great reality. Sinful man cannot approach holy God except through sacrifice. That's the point of those 16 chapters. In the first seven chapters of Leviticus, God prescribes five different kinds of sacrifice that were to be part of the worship of every Israelite. Now think about that for a moment. If you had lived in Old Testament Israel, you had five different kinds of sacrifices that you were required to make in addition to those that were done at the national level. Every day there was a morning and evening sacrifice and and there were countless sacrifices made on the special holidays for the nation. But as an individual, you were responsible to make sacrifice and those five sacrifices were intensely personal. I don't think living today we fully understand this. Let me just take you back, for example, and I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you were an Old Testament believer, that you lived in Israel and that you were required to make sacrifice and that you had sinned against God and you needed to bring a sin offering. What would that look like? Well, it it would look like this. You would have brought a physically perfect animal to the forecourt of the temple, one without blemish, And then you would have laid your hands on the head of that animal. You would have been in so doing, implying that that animal now served as your representative. And often, if it was a sin offering, for example, you would confess over the head of that innocent animal your sins. It pictured the transference of your guilt to this innocent little animal that had done nothing you had done. Then comes the most shocking part of all. The priest would have handed you the knife. And with your own hand, you would have slit the throat of that innocent animal. And its blood would have drained out right in front of you. You would have taken its life. And then as the blood poured out of the throat of that animal, the priest would have caught the blood in a wide-mouthed bowl. And he would have walked a few steps away to the brazen altar. And he would have slung that blood across the altar and then he would have taken the, the appropriate part of the animal, depending on the kind of sacrifice, and he would have laid it on the altar to burn. It was intensely personal. And it was intended to make clear, think about this, it was intended to make clear that that innocent animal was dying in your place that you deserve to die, but that animal was now dying in your place. God was making it clear that the only way sinful man can ever approach holy God is through sacrifice. You see, people often miss the point of the Old Testament sacrifices. The sacrifices were not for the worshiper. They were for God. They were for God. Moses explains this repeatedly in Leviticus 1 to 7 using a phrase that occurs some 42 times in the Old Testament connected to sacrifice. Let me show you. It starts in Genesis chapter 8. This is the first time we encounter it after the flood. Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, says, Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took the animals and offered the animals on that altar. And verse 21 of Genesis 8 says this, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma. What was the soothing aroma? It was the smell of the burning flesh rising up from that animal. A soothing aroma. And then God said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, 
For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. The sacrifice that was offered soothed the wrath of God. Turn over to Leviticus. Look at Leviticus chapter 1. I just want you to see this. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9, the end of the verse. The burnt offering is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Verse 13, the end of the verse, it's an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Verse 17, the end of the verse, it is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 2, the end of the verse, it's an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to the Lord. Verse 9, it is a soothing aroma to the Lord, and so forth. Go over to the sin offering, chapter 4, verse 31. The middle of the verse, the priest shall offer it up in the smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to the Lord. Do you get it? That's the point of the sacrifices. The phrase a soothing aroma literally means a scent that quiets, soothes, or tranquilizes. You see, the smoke from the burning sacrifice was an aroma that calmed God's just anger against man's sin. That's a disturbing thought, and we don't like to think about it like this. But my sin and your sin so greatly offends God, it stirs His anger such that His just wrath against our sins must be calmed We like to think about other people's sin that way, but we tend to give ourselves a get-out-of-jail-free card. Not me. You know, I'm like a favorite. doesn't work like that. The Old Testament sacrifices were for God to quiet, to soothe, to satisfy His holy wrath against our sin. Propitiation was pictured in the Old Testament sacrifices. Number three, It was never truly accomplished in the Old Testament sacrifices. It was pictured, but it was never really accomplished. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. They didn't work. The sacrifices didn't accomplish propitiation. Look at verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices in that old, old covenant system, and those can never take away sins. They pictured propitiation, but they didn't actually accomplish it. And that brings us to number four. Propitiation could only be accomplished by the voluntary death of a perfectly holy, sinless human. Let me say that again. Propitiation could only be accomplished by the voluntary death of a perfectly holy, sinless human. If you're still in Hebrews 10, look at this this portion I skipped. Look at verse 5. Or let's go back to verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he, that is Jesus, comes into the world, he says, and he quotes from Psalm 40, sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. 
in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, this is Jesus talking, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It's written to me to do your will, O God. Now, the writer of Hebrews, beginning in verse 8, interprets this. He says, After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've not desired nor taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then, he says, Behold, I have come to do your will. What does it mean? Verse 9, He takes away the first animal sacrifices to establish the second. And here's the point, verse 10. By God's will... We have been sanctified. We've been set apart to God. We've been saved through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of The Believer's New Relationship to Sin. Join us next time for part 10. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.